In this episode, I'll be using outdated terminology that most of us would consider offensive today, and I'll be describing some disturbing theories and practices, so be forewarned. Hi, I'm John Roach. I'm going to give you a rough history of disability. It should be called the history of accessibility or the history of inclusion, but these concepts are relatively new. The story of disability runs in parallel with the story of humanity itself. And like the story of humanity, some of it isn't pretty. It involves murder. 250,000 people were disinfected, because that was the terminology, disinfected, in other words, they were killed off. Neglect. 100% of patients at Willowbrook contract hepatitis within six months of being in the institution. Segregation. We had larger and larger institutions Many of them placed uh, in the countryside. In other words, they were isolated. And sterilization. I'm sorry, Doctor. Three generations of unfit are enough. But it's also a story of innovation. That it's designed to enable a man who has spent the last 25 years in a spinal jacket to live an active life. Determination. We're more than handicapped without these laws. We're crippled. And ultimately, love. The Special Olympics give telling testimony to the indestructibility of the human spirit. Attitudes to disability today are very much products of its history. Written by a nice reporter, now the poor guy, you gotta see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said, oh, I don't remember. If we want to understand current practices, stereotypes, and infrastructure around disability, we have to revisit its past. It's believed that the um, in Elizabethan, in, for example, the, the court jesters were people with, sh with, uh, with a shaking palsy. So when they um, sh shook, their bells would ring and that would be for the entertainment of the court. It's also very much a personal history to me. I've got cerebral palsy. So in telling this story, I might drop in a couple of my own first-hand experiences too. And if you pause the episode of Songs of Praise here, you can see me making my TV debut, singing and clapping along at Mass. This story is mostly focused on the history and attitudes around the so-called Western world, but I will bring in some notes on different parts of the world also. Welcome to this yarn mini-series. Disability, a parallel history. Episode 1, Parallel Worlds. You've heard of the Paralympics, right? Today it's the second biggest sporting event in the world. The Paralympics was established in Stoke Mandeville Hospital, England, in 1948 by a small group of veterans who sustained life-changing injuries during the Second World War. Stoke Mandeville, where shown once again that even a spinal injury needn't stop you from joining in. The veterans competed against each other in sporting events in the modest surroundings of the hospital gardens. They organised their event to run in parallel with the Summer Olympic Games being held in London just 45 miles away. Men like these waste no time being sorry for themselves. Losing one faculty, they develop the others in compensation. They seek no pity, but they deserve our help. At the time, the world was focused on the Olympics. Very few people even knew that this parallel event was going on. 
It reminds me of my childhood. I attended two parallel play schools. One was near my home in my local village with the local kids. I can't recollect the first day in that play school or anything much beyond drinking diluted orange from colourful plastic cups. But the first day at the other play school is still quite clear in my mind. This play school was in the town in a much bigger building with long wide hallways. I remember being brought into a large room with the highest ceilings I'd ever seen. It was really noisy, the sound of all the other children echoed around the vast space. The floor was covered in linoleum tiles. The pattern depicted an intricate plan view of a road network complete with roundabouts, car parks and intersections. And the smell, a mixture of play-doh, poster paints, disinfectant and the distinct aroma of uh, cooking wafting in from the kitchen in the adjoining room. I clung to my mother, surveying the room while she chatted to the other grown-ups. Then I started to notice something unusual about the other children. They weren't like the kids in my other play school. The children here looked very different. Some were using walking or standing aids. Some wore padded helmets. One or two of them moved erratically. They shook their heads or shouted sporadically. Others were slumped in chairs their faces and hands contorted. This was the first time I'd seen anyone like this before. I was afraid. Then my mother gestured that she was leaving. I remember thinking, there's no way you're leaving me here. As she walked out the door, I erupted in tears. Why am I here, I thought. These kids aren't like me. As the weeks and months passed, I got used to attending both play schools, and I got used to the kids I originally thought were scary. But as I grew older, the two worlds continued in parallel. I went to primary school in the able-bodied world, for want of a better term, while at the same time I went to physiotherapy and occupational therapy in the disabled world. I went swimming with the pupils in my able-bodied or typical school once a week, and I also went swimming on a different day with the disabled children and their families at the same swimming pool. I attended parallel Christmas parties, parallel sports days, parallel art classes, I took parallel buses to parallel events with parallel people. Nobody from the two worlds ever crossed over. I never spoke about the disabled world to anyone in the able-bodied world. I was able to switch between the two worlds. I knew some of the other kids from the disabled world went to able-bodied schools too, but most of them didn't. As I grew up into young adulthood, I saw less and less of the disabled world because I didn't need the treatments as often. As a consequence, I left that community behind. And if I'm totally honest, at that time I just wanted to forget about it. So today I don't have any close friends with a disability and I rarely interact with people from the disabled community. The popular view now, of course, is that any kind of segregation doesn't benefit anyone in society. I grew up in the 90s, and while it wasn't exactly out of sight, out of mind, the remnants of segregation were there. Before we move on, I'm just going to tackle a question head-on that I've been asking myself for as long as I can remember. What is a disability? It's a tough question, and people still don't totally agree on the answer. 
If you break it right down, you could say, a disability is any impairment that makes it more difficult for a person to do certain activities or interact with the world around them. These impairments may be cognitive, intellectual, mental, physical or sensory. That's not a bad description, right? Covers pretty much everything. Any impairment that makes it more difficult for a person to do certain activities or interact with the world around them. A disability doesn't have to be a permanent condition either. It can be temporary. So technically, if you get drunk, your ability to do certain activities is impaired. So you could say you're disabled. Any impairment that makes it... The word impairment. It gets interesting when you try to define what the impairment is. From a medical point of view, a disability is a problem with the person's physiology directly caused by disease or trauma, or any other health conditions that may require medical care. The goal is to cure the individual insofar as possible, or to adjust the individual's behaviour or practices so they can interact with the world more easily. So a person whose hearing is substantially impaired, uh, you might call them deaf, this is a disability because the person doesn't have the ability to hear in the same way that the majority of the population does. This is usually called the medical model of disability. But there's another way to define an impairment. The impairment is not attributed to the individual, but rather the conditions or the environment surrounding the individual. It's a barrier in the external world, which they need to overcome, and people are made to be disabled because the environment they live in wasn't designed for them. This is usually called the social model of disability. So, for a person with a hearing impairment, they are disabled because the world around them has been optimised for hearing people. This is true of a lot of disabilities. I personally only have the use of one hand, so any task that requires the use of two hands at the same time I'll find difficult. For me, there's usually a simple way around any difficulty, but if everyone else in society had only the use of one hand, well then I wouldn't be at a disadvantage. Nothing would be designed for two hands. In a lot of situations, a person with a disability is perfectly healthy. They just have difficulty because they are in the minority. They are outliers. They deviate from the norm or the typical. So society disregards their needs. Any impairment that makes it more difficult for a person to do certain activities or interact with the world around them. But what if the impairment is so severe that it impacts the person's ability to live? If there's no medical cure or technological support, a person that can't perform life-sustaining activities, like feeding themselves, will need sustained care. How societies choose to care for their more disadvantaged members has been evolving over the centuries sometimes progressing and other times regressing. How different societies view disabled people has a direct impact on how they are treated. If they're not seen as worth the effort, well, or if they can't be seen at all, then you've got the out of sight, out of mind problem. Let's begin our look back through history and see how we got to where we are now. Our history starts at the start of humanity. Before Homo sapiens, there was the Neanderthals. Over the years, as archaeologists identified and uncovered our Neanderthal skeletons, 
they started to notice something they were not expecting. They found a significant number of fully grown adult skeletons with signs of cerebral palsy. They also found adult skeletons with missing limbs, evidently that had been lost from childhood. And they found more skeletons with other major physical impairments that would have severely restricted their mobility. The age of the skeletons at their death is proof that these people were supported and cared for by their families or tribe members throughout their lives. So these are the first known examples of inclusion. It's not a bad start. Moving on about 35,000 years to the Egyptians, the Elbers Papyrus is an Egyptian medical book dating to around the year 1550 BC. It features the first recorded reference to mental and physical disability. The papyrus is a really interesting document. It shows us that the Egyptians had quite advanced medical knowledge. It notes that the heart is the centre of the blood supply, with vessels attached for every member of the body. Mental disorders are detailed in a chapter of the papyrus called the Book of Hearts. Disorders such as depression and dementia are covered. The descriptions of these disorders suggest that the Egyptians conceived of mental and physical health in much the same way. 33 centuries had passed since human feet last trod the floor on which we stood. This is the voice of Harold Carter describing what he saw when he discovered the tomb of the most famous Egyptian of them all. A gasp of wonderment escaped our lips. A golden effigy of the young king of magnificent workmanship filled the whole of the interior. The pharaoh, Tutankhamun, was physically disabled. His skeleton shows a deformity of his left foot and his spine shows evidence of scoliosis. Several walking canes were found in his tomb near his body, but there are no depictions of him with any kind of walking aid. His disability was most likely kept a secret from anyone beyond his inner circle. This is a tactic that will be repeated by prominent figures throughout history, as if having a disability was something shameful. Speaking of walking aids, the oldest known documented representation of a wheeled walking aid is from the Egyptian era. On display in the British Museum is a small terracotta figurine. It depicts a young boy or girl standing upright with a wide smile on their face as they hold on to a, a walking aid. The frame is triangular at the base with a wheel at each corner and it has a bar at the top that the child grips onto with each hand. Other ancient cultures took quite a different approach to disability. The ancient Greeks and the Romans even more so believed that they exemplified the ideal human type. They viewed themselves as superior to all other races. Physical difference in the form of ethnicity or, or disability was seen as a mark of inferiority or weakness. The Spartans, known for their extreme macho culture and their obsession with the warrior, they passed a law that required the immediate killing of infants who were judged deformed and sickly. The practice of killing deformed infants is even mentioned in the Greek myth of Hephaestus. Hephaestus is the only ancient god with a disability. In the myth, Hephaestus's father, Zeus, and his mother, Hera, the king and queen of the gods, were initially delighted that their child was born. But the queen's delight quickly disappeared when she was handed the child she just brought into the world. The infant 
had a rough and harshly lined face, along with a drastically misshapen body. Upon further horrified inspection, Hira noticed that the boy's feet were completely inverted, with his toes being positioned where his heels should have been, and vice versa. This cannot be, Hira muttered repeatedly to herself over and over as she made her way to the top of Mount Olympus's highest peak. The Queen of the Gods lifted her newborn child high over her head and hurled him over the edge with all her might. For two full days, the baby hurtled through the air until finally he hit the ocean's waters with a massive splash. The baby continued to descend deep into the water until it hit the surface of the earth. The collision was so great, a massive depression formed that nearly reached the fiery centre of the planet's core. Thus, the first volcanoes had come into existence. Hephaestus' Roman name, Vulcan, is referenced in the term given to the study of volcanoes, volcanology. The reason I mention myth is because the Greeks used myth to understand the world around them, and now we often use myth to understand ourselves. The story of Hephaestus speaks to the contemporary attitudes to disability. The Greeks were equally as intolerant when it came to intellectual disability. It was the Greeks who gave us the word idiot. The word comes from the Greek word idios. Idios refers to a person who was not a public official, but the term evolved came to refer to one who was lacking professional knowledge and later to one who was ignorant, ill-informed or um, of ill judgment. We're not finished with the word idiot yet. It will later be used as a scientific definition in the 18th century. While we tend to attribute the ancient Greeks and Romans as the forefathers of modern science and learning, the average Greek or Roman person was incredibly superstitious. The notion that a god is responsible for causing a disability was very prevalent. Some believed that God created disabilities as a method of punishment, either for the individual or for the parents. Others viewed disability as a special gift from God. People who had seizures in the ancient world, or fits as they called them, were often said to be touched by the finger of God and considered sacred. Hippocrates, the father of medicine, doctors still say his oath, do no harm today. Hippocrates tried to dispel this myth about epilepsy in particular. Hippocrates wants to tell us that this is not a supernatural event or a possession. Here's Professor Frank Snowden of Yale University. He says instead something extremely different. It appears to me to be no wise more divine or sacred than other diseases, but has a natural cause like other afflictions. Men regard its nature and cause as divine from ignorance and wonder. Those who first referred this malady to the gods appear to me to have been just such persons as the conjurers, mountbanks, and charlatans are. Strong words from Hippocrates there, calling out fake news. Unfortunately, he was way ahead of his own time and contemporary thought. Aristotle, the most famous Greek philosopher, believed, as did most in the ancient Greece, that a man was the most highly evolved being, and that a woman was one giant evolutionary step below, representing, as he said, the first step along the road to deformity. Aristotle also recommended that there should be a law similar to the Spartans, 
um, to prevent the rearing of deformed children. He wrote, as to the exposure of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. To expose meant to leave an unwanted infant out in the woods, exposed to the elements. Exposing young children with severe disabilities was a common practice in ancient Greece and early ancient Rome. You know the myth of Romulus and Remus, the brothers who founded Rome? That starts with their exposure as babies. They were left by a river to fend for themselves, but luckily a wolf found them and she brought them to safety. In ancient Roman society, people with disabilities were treated as objects of scorn or humour. This is explained by Professor Bob Jackson of Edith Cohn University. Uh, in the Colosseum, uh, in the intervals, uh, dwarves were dressed up in, in gladiators' uniforms and were put against real gladiators as amusement for the, clown, uh, for the crowd in between the events. It was also not unusual for wealthy Roman families to own a slave with a physical or mental disability for their amusement, referred to as a fool. Fools in later times would become known as jesters. It's believed that the um, in Elizabethan, in, for example, the, the court jesters were people with, sh- with, a, with a shaking palsy. So when they um, sh- shook, their bells would ring and that would be for the entertainment of the court. There are only a few references to disabilities in the ancient world. And nowhere in writing did the Greeks or Romans ever ponder what could be done to make living with a disability more bearable or acceptable? The Celts, on the other hand, had an alternative approach to disabled people. Each individual Celtic tribe was responsible by law for caring for the wounded, the sick, and those with intellectual impairment. Communities cared for their own in the community. With the rise of Christianity, there was a gradual influence on how people with disabilities were treated. In the stories of Jesus Christ, He showed compassion for people with disabilities. In the New Testament, Jesus is frequently credited with showing kindness and performing miraculous cures for those who were lame, blind or otherwise disabled. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Master, if you will, you can make me clean. I will. The parable of the Samaritan and Examples with lepers gave clear guidelines for how marginalised people were to be cared for and respected. His message to do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a call for empathy and understanding. The Islamic religion has a similar ethos when it comes to the treatment of people with disabilities. Buddhists also believe in showing compassion towards people less fortunate than themselves. But for Buddhists who believe in reincarnation, There's an interpretation that bad karma is the cause of disability, specifically that a person's moral inactions from a previous life will manifest as misfortune or hardship in the next. Some Buddhists also believe that if you help the less fortunate, you will build your own good karma. In modern societies where Buddhism is the main religion practiced, Buddhists with disabilities have reported that other people have condescending attitudes towards them. The emphasis on compassion has been linked with a reluctance to encourage independence and social inclusion for people with disabilities. In Thailand, the World Bank reported that because of Buddhist teachings on showing compassion towards the weak, people then often donate money to beggars with disabilities. But the World Bank argues that while this kindness can be admirable, it doesn't promote equality for people with disabilities. 
The first time I heard about bad karma and reincarnation was when I was about 12. At that age I was soccer obsessed. The peak of this were the years of 1998 through to 2002, in particular the World Cup in 98 and the European Championships in the year 2000. I remember intently following the lead up to the forthcoming Euro 2000 tournament and all the qualifying games. Then one day a story from the soccer world exploded onto the main news and everyone was talking about it. The Hoddle Disability Row. Hello, good evening. The row over Glenn Hoddle's reported views on the disabled and reincarnation show no sign of abating. He says he's been misunderstood and misinterpreted. The England soccer team manager at the time was Glenn Hoddle. During an interview with the Times newspaper, he made some unusual comments. The England football coach has been trying to put the record straight, saying that the last thing he wanted was to upset people with disabilities. Well, that's just what he did. He's quoted as saying, you and I have been given two hands and two legs and half-decent brains. Some people have not been born like that for a reason. The karma is working from another lifetime. What you sow, you have to reap. So Hoddle went on TV and did another interview to clarify what he actually meant. All I've said, I gave an example of, of the man asked me about reincarnation, which I've been on television and radio before, and said that's a, in, that's a personal belief of mine. Um, I tried to give him an example of why people, you know, are born into to sometimes in life um, in poverty, in, 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 in material riches. And there's, there's an imbalance there, there's an injustice, of which I've also said people were born disabled coming into life and, and other people. I mean, I, I've personally got three lovely children that have not been disabled, God bless, at this moment in time. Uh, that didn't really clear up anything. It only enraged people further. According to the quotes attributed to Glenn Hoddle, Michael has been visited by the sins of his father and left paralysed from the chest down. Likewise, five-year-old Thomas Steele, born with cysts on the brain due to a rare congenital disorder, passed on from his mother, who already feels enough guilt without Glenn Hoddle's pronouncements. I was just so shocked. I just, I just thought that is just absolutely disgusting, an absolutely terrible thing to say about any, any child, anybody with a disability. It's just totally, utterly disgusting. With the international game against France now just 10 days away, Hoddle will no doubt be praying for the karma after this particular storm to arrive quickly. Paul Brennan, Sky News. Glenn Hoddle was sacked before that game against France, which England lost 2-0. And another razor-sharp move from the French. At the time, I think I was more confused by the whole fiasco than anything else. The teacher in my primary school spent a few minutes in class condemning his comments. She was probably trying to head off any potential teasing I might receive, being the only disabled kid in the class. Where were we? I think we were up to Christianity in Europe. By the 4th century AD, the rise of Christianity in Europe led to more humane practices towards people with disabilities. Exposure and infanticide decreased, and helping the afflicted became a sign of religious obligation. The first institution to shelter abandoned infants and the sick was established in 325 AD at Nicaea, an ancient city in modern Turkey. Leprosy declined after the Crusades, so the remaining colonies, the Leprosoriums, were converted to other uses. And the Leprosoriums were converted... Here's Professor Bob Jackson again. ...and just filled up with everyone who didn't fit. Um, you know, orphans, vagabonds, prostitutes, criminals, um, epileptics, idiots, lunatics, and all this terminology. Um, 
And they put in there, and they put under the control of administrators who could do whatever they liked with the um, the people there, uh, including torture and so forth. And the people had no rights or no control over what was actually going on. These places came to be known as the cities of the damned. The administrations of these so-called cities of the damned had total authority over their inhabitants. Their rule was harsh. They used stakes, irons prisons and dungeons to keep people in line. It's during this time idiot cages became common in town centres. The idea was to keep people with disabilities out of trouble, or to stop them from wandering off, but they also served as entertainment for townspeople. A popular activity if you pass the town square was to rattle the cage. That was 4th century entertainment. Some people with disabilities, particularly those considered unproductive dependents, were shipped off to other lands. Some communities paid sailors to take these individuals away so they would no longer pose a burden. This practice led to the ship of fools, the boat that would sail from port to port collecting human cargo. Ship's captains even started charging admission so curious townspeople could board the ships while they were in port and view the fools on show. Eventually the ships would abandon their passengers at another port, forcing them to fend for themselves. The practice of shipping off people with disabilities may have been rare, but the popularity of the legend suggests that society wanted to separate itself from deviant people. During the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church provided refuge for those in need, establishing orphanages, um, hospitals and homes for the blind and the aged. In the year 787, the Archbishop of Milan founded an asylum for abandoned infants. He wrote, as soon as the child is exposed at the door of the church, it will be received in the hospital and confined to the care of those who will be paid to look after them. While those words sound well-intentioned, the conditions at the institution were dire. Most children admitted didn't survive into adulthood. Another more community-focused approach to caring for people with disabilities was documented in 1215 at Giel in Belgium. People with disabilities were brought there on a pilgrimage because it was believed that madness could be cured at the shrine of Dymphna, the patron saint of the mentally afflicted. A tradition built up around the town where local community members took in up to two boarders with disabilities. This is considered the beginning of family care and foster care. Over 800 years later, the pilgrimage to Giel Shrine and the tradition of taking in boarders still continues. Uh, so we're very happy with the two boarders we have now. Giel locals, Tony and Arthur, share their home with two boarders, both with mental disabilities. And they said, we've got an older man and we'd like to give him a couple of years left of his life in a happy home. Their first boarder was Dis, who's 87. And that's our boarder still. That's Dis. That's uh, just, a, just about eight years ago that he came to live with us. A little bit of raving. And he was already uh, late 70s, so... He was really old. We saw him and he was a very nice guy. He asked us, can I come live with you? And their second boarder is Luke, who's 48. 
Luke is, is, is like related to him. And uh, I think that's, that's Luke is also uh, looking after him. They are completely ours, I think. Uh, when we go on holiday, they are going also. When we go on a restaurant, they're coming with us. They are just your, like your own children. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine uh, a life without them. In 1996, when I was 11 years old, uh, I went on my own pilgrimage of sorts. I went to a similar town to Giel in that it was built up around a religious shrine, the town of Lourdes in the south of France. Lourdes was made famous among Catholics in 1858 when a local peasant girl claimed to have seen apparitions of the Virgin Mary at the mouth of a cave. Was somebody with you in that cave? The story was told in a 1943 movie. If I tell you, you must swear not to give me away. Apparently people spoke English in American accents in Lourdes back then. Well, I saw a lady and she was all in white. A lady? And she wore a blue girdle and had a golden rose on each foot. I've never seen anything in my life so beautiful. The girl, Bernadette, was later canonised. A massive church was built on the site above the cave and the town became a major location of pilgrimage and what you might call religious tourism. The stream from the cave was believed to have healing powers. Baths were constructed so pilgrims could bathe there and be cured of all their ailments. Of course, before I went, I didn't know any of that. My mother had just signed me up for an annual kids with special needs trip there for Easter holidays. I remember being hesitant at the idea. What? But I'm not religious, I'd say to my mum. I don't want to have to pray all day. We don't even go to mass. I wouldn't know what to do. My mum just said, shh, don't be saying that. It's a free holiday to a foreign country. Don't you want to go on a holiday? You'll get to go on an airplane. I hadn't been to a foreign country before. I hadn't been on a holiday without my parents before. But most importantly, I hadn't been on an airplane before. So I went. A group of kids from my local area were joined by a bunch of adult carers and volunteers, along with our own dedicated priest. And we got on the plane to France. Lourdes, in the 90s at least, was like Disneyland for Catholics. It was the tackiest place I'd ever seen. The streets were filled with shops selling kitsch religious merchandise, and all the cafes and restaurants were biblically themed. Unlike Giel, we didn't stay with host families, but our group stayed in a hotel called the Madonna, which I thought was named after the pop singer, so I took a picture of the sign for my sister, who was a big fan. The year I was there, the Pilgrimage Trust was celebrating 40 years of sending kids to Lourdes. So, Songs of Praise, a BBC TV show, um, was there to cover the action. The main event was a huge mass of around 5,000 pilgrims, the culmination of which was uh, the singing of the song Rise and Shine, it's the unofficial anthem of the Trust. The BBC were filming the whole thing. And if you pause the episode of Songs of Praise, here, you can see me making my TV debut, singing and clapping along at Mass. The BBC interviewed lots of people visiting Lourdes that week. One of them was this guy. I think there's one person once came and they said they never realised there were so many people who believed, young people who believed in God. I think that's true. If you walk around the streets during the day, during the night, there's just so many young people here and it's great. Yeah, in a way it was great. 
Mostly it was good to spend so much time with other kids like me. I didn't come home cured though, or a believer. Oh, what would a beautiful lady be doing in a filthy place like that? I don't know. But she was there. Truly she was. Getting back to Giel in the 1200s, the people of Giel, who effectively fostered people with disabilities, showed that care for disabled people was going in a more compassionate direction. Their motivation as believers in the Catholic faith was salvation. If we take care of these people and treat them as family members, we will be rewarded in the afterlife. Over the next couple of centuries in Europe, new technologies and methods were being developed that benefited people with disabilities. In the 1300s, spectacles were invented in Italy. In the 1400s, Gertz von Berlichingen, Berlichingen. Ber I'm not sure how to pronounce that, a German knight, lost his arm in battle. So he created um, for himself what's thought to be the first prosthetic hand. It was made of iron and it had movable joints. Also in the 1400s, the Venetian Republic founded the first publicly funded health service in Europe. It required licensed doctors to attend an annual course in anatomy, attend monthly meetings and exchange notes on new cases and treatments. But just as it was starting to look up for people with disabilities, at least in some parts of the world, in the 1500s comes the Protestant Reformation and the big man behind it, Martin Luther. Things were about to get bad. In the next episode of Disability, A Parallel History. It is not necessary for salvation to be subject to a Roman Pope. What, Doctor? That is the heart of the heresy. Von Uffenbach arrived at Bethlehem and asked to see a patient whom he had been told crowed all day like a cockerel. He saw other male patients with milder conditions, not mad, he said, but only deprived of their, of their wits, and female patients he described as, I'm very sorry to say, utterly repulsive. All in all, a wonderful day out for the scholar. That's how he wrote it up. I mean, the legend says that uh, all these people were in chains. And then Philippinel believed that these people should be treated humanely as medically ill patients. He proposed to free these people from the chains and people thought, oh my God, they're gonna become aggressive and they're gonna attack him. And the people are, instead of attacking him, uh, kissing uh, his hand. So, Filipinel... This has been a story for yarnpodcast.com. Written and ranted by John Roach.